All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning and worship God together. We're going to continue our time of worship by studying his word. So if you'd open up to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 15, the name of the message that I've entitled this morning is a church fight worth having. And so they get into a tussle and this is a tussle that changed the world, that, that, that preserved the gospel of grace. And I hope we're going to see that this morning and being even more uh, steadfastly committed to the gospel of grace as a church. All right, Acts 15. I'm going to read it in sections as we move along through it. So if you'd follow along in your copy of God's word, I'm going to read the first five verses. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So just to start us out in your outline there is this opening statement. Fighting for the sake of fighting is sin. <laughs> Fighting for the, for the sake of preserving the gospel of grace is vital for the church in every generation. Say it again. Fighting for the sake of fighting is sin. Fighting to preserve the gospel of grace is vital for the church in every generation. So what we've seen up to this point in the book of Acts is, is the pressure is rising. And the pressure, though, is rising and it's been coming from one place, namely outside the church. Pressure from religious authorities, uh, opposed to the gospel and opposed to Jesus as the Messiah. Pressure from, from political authorities and the Roman Empire is starting to heat up in the book of Acts. We've seen some of that all the way through. But at this point, right here, we notice tension inside the church. So now we've got to add to the dilemma of persecution, the dilemma of error. The dilemma of losing possibly losing the grace of God in the gospel. And we see this is inside the church because it's among believers, verse 10, believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So just, that might seem like it doesn't make any sense, right? If, if you're familiar with reading the, the gospels, the Pharisees are the ones who always opposed Jesus. They're the ones who conspired with Rome to have Jesus executed. So you put them in a category where they're always the unbelievers, but then you come to verse 10 and it says, some believers from among the party of the Pharisees are there. So apparently, after Jesus died and rose again, some Pharisees from the party of the Pharisees became believers in Jesus, put their trust in Jesus as Messiah. One extremely noteworthy example of a Pharisee who put his trust in Jesus Christ is who? Paul himself, <laughs> Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, and he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. So he wasn't alone. There were other Pharisees who believed in Jesus, and yet what we see here is uh, old habits die hard, don't they? 
Sometimes you get ingrained in a certain position and view and a way of teaching the Bible and teaching the Old Testament, and it's hard to shake that when something new comes along, and there were new elements. It's the new covenant. It's the New Testament. Jesus Christ has, has offered himself as the final lamb that's slain. Jesus said, tear down this temple, I will rebuild it. So something's happening with the temple. Something's happening with the sacrifices. There's new stuff happening, and it's, it's hard for everybody to get used to some of the things that are going to be changing. So what's going on? Background underneath this text, what's creating the tension is this battle over circumcision, and battle over the need, necessity is the language that's used here, the need to keep the law of Moses. In other words, bottom line, did these Gentile believers who had just put their trust in Jesus, did Gentiles need to act like Jews before they could become Christians? You see how complicated this is. So Paul, earlier this same year, so here we are, we're probably 48 A.D., Earlier this same year, Paul wrote Galatians with his hair on fire over this exact same issue. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 these words, some false brothers have infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So, you add Luke's perspective, the fact that there are some Pharisees who have genuinely believed and have some genuine struggles to the fact that Paul says, yeah, but mixed in with those who have genuine struggles are some false brothers who have infiltrated our ranks and they're trying to tear down the gospel of grace from the inside. And Paul, by the way, in the very next verse in Galatians 2 says, we didn't submit to them for even a second. We contended for the grace of God. Right, so all of a sudden, Try, try to imagine, try to climb into the shoes of these new believers who are trying to figure things out, right? And, and some of them are Jews and they've been doing things for a certain way for 1,500 years and all of a sudden, things that God told us to care about in his all-sufficient word, namely the Hebrew scriptures, all of a sudden we, we don't care about those things anymore? Has God changed? Right? All of a sudden we don't care about the temple, Apparently, word is going around that the Spirit apparently is building a new temple, and the Apostle Peter is going to talk about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. The bricks of the new temple are Jew and Gentile believers. This is a shock to the system. So, so the temple's going away. The sacrifices? It looks like the sacrifices are probably going to phase out as well. So if you loved the way we've been doing it these past 1,500 years, you might be on the struggle bus. And that's what's going on in Acts chapter 15. The Pharisees said, enough, enough. Everything can't all be changing at the same time. At some point, you gotta draw a line. At some point, somebody's gotta still stand up for holiness. Does that still matter to anybody? It still matters to us. And God has given us ways to get cleaned up in his presence, and those things have mattered. They come from God. So at some point, you gotta draw a line. And they're basically saying, okay, the, the temple and the sacrifices, all right, may, maybe some of that is affected, but take away circumcision and the need to obey the Mosaic law, and there goes the neighborhood. That, that's kind of the idea that's underneath their concern. This, this group is called the, uh, the party of the Pharisees, uh, which seems like an oxymoron. 
uh, it's, it's sometimes called the circumcision party, which is even more of an oxymoron if you think about it, right? Because in the Old Testament, males had to be circumcised in order to become part of God's people, right? So this circumcision party is a mandatory party, to put it delicately, that involves minor outpatient surgery, that, that's the entrance. That's you want to come into the faith. You got to do this thing. And it's, you're going to have to take a couple sick days to, uh, to walk across the threshold into the faith. And that's why there's this debate raging in Acts chapter 15. The passage unfolds, if you will, in three movements, beginning with grace attacked. Grace attacked. So Jewish leaders, we see in verse 1, men came down from Judea. So that's kind of headquarters. That's where, that's where it all started. And now they're coming to Antioch where all the Gentiles are, where hundreds, maybe thousands of Gentile believers, brand new in the faith. And so here comes Judea. The big dogs from Judea come down to Antioch to check things out, and we hear shots fired right there in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised, this is what they say, According to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Talk about wasting no words. Tell us what you really believe. I mean, the theology is right. Every word pays its weight. It is right there. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. And according to, to, to Luke, that statement was more than enough to pull Paul and Barnabas very proactively into the conversation. And they started raising their voices. What's going on here if you're taking notes? The message that unsettled Antioch is basically this. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision and law keeping equals acceptance before God. That, that's the formula that's set out by the Pharisee party in verse one. And then verse two, Luke says in the ESV translation, I love how it, it's translated this way. They had, quote, no small dissension and debate. <laughs> That's an old school way of saying you could hear them from outside. This is not, they're not conversing over tea and scones. This is, this is, a, uh, this is an ordeal. They are making a scene. Paul and Barnabas are not having it. This is a church fight worth having. Now, spoiler alert. The relevance of the fight we're overhearing in Acts chapter 15 can hardly be overstated for our moment, for today. Put it this way. If the conclusion of this debate ended up favoring the party of the Pharisees, there would be no gospel and this room would be empty. That's how relevant Acts 15 is, not only for ancient history in the first century as they worked out some theological things, but for the rest of history, for the preservation of the gospel. If you want Paul to come out guns blazing, start telling Gentile believers still wet dripping from their baptism, they can't spell theology yet, but their lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. Start telling those brand new believers the cross wasn't enough. And you'll find him very quickly making his voice heard. It, it starts saying to brand new believers who are Gentiles, it's important to put your trust in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law of Moses and you also need to honor this age-old purity ritual. It's just as urgent today 
that we clarify where obedience factors in the Christian life. Obedience is a fruit of grace, not the cause of grace. Our obedience flows from the grace we've, see, we've received in Jesus Christ. It doesn't trigger grace toward us. It's an outflow of grace experience. You ever seen a young believer eaten up by legalism? You ever seen somebody plagued by a sense that they could never arrive at the assurance of God's love, that, that God couldn't bring them into his family because their sin was bigger than the cross? You ever, you ever walk with somebody like that? Maybe you've struggled with it yourself. Assurance of salvation. It's not hard to imagine these teachers in verse one who have come down from Judea and they're moving across Antioch and they're preaching salvation through Jesus' sacrifice plus circumcision and law keeping and new Gentile believers saying, I thought I was already clean. Paul didn't say anything. There was no fine print underneath it. He didn't say anything about the Old Testament law. I thought I was clean, I thought I was home, I thought I belonged to God, I thought I was accepted. They told me I could consider myself a child of Abraham by faith. That's, what I, that's how in I thought I was. And yet now everything's shaking underneath my feet. No wonder Paul takes the gloves off in the book of Galatians. No wonder he takes the gloves off. This is Paul and Barnabas doing apostolic business. <laughs> the, the debate, Obviously, if you read the text, and we just did, this section where we, we gather that the debate wasn't settled in Antioch. They came down from Judea to Antioch, words were had. <laughs> but the debate wasn't settled because really ground zero and where all of this is emanating, this error is emanating from Jerusalem. So the debate needs to change. The location, the venue needs to change. So they pick up all of their arguments and folders and they carry the debate back to Jerusalem and they say, let's have it out here. Now everybody's here, right? This is, this is where the source of this teaching has been coming from. And so they travel to Jerusalem, they book a conference room and they contend for the gospel of grace. And we move from grace attacked second to grace defended if you'd follow along in Acts 15, verse six, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Notice all those words, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God? by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So this time, 
it's not Paul and Barnabas who are contending for the gospel of grace. It's Peter. Peter pulls the mic forward. Peter speaks up and he says, here's what happened. I, I was directed, and you know this, I was directed by God to go and share the good news with a guy named Cornelius and a house full of Gentiles. Walked into the house, and there they were. The house was packed with Cornelius and his Gentile friends, and I told them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and they believed, and they all went into the waters of baptism. Here's the thing. God poured out his spirit on them exactly like he did to us, Peter says. Peter's saying, When the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, here in Jerusalem, we're in Jerusalem, when the Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, we, you you guys, we all saw this as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That, That Jeremiah had talked about a new covenant, a new day. God would take away a stony heart. He would give people a new heart. They would now want to obey his law from the inside out. Everything was gonna change. He was gonna put his Spirit inside of them. And when we were filled with the Spirit here in Jerusalem, we said, the prophecies have been fulfilled. The Spirit's been given. There's a new purification taking place. And we all believed it, is what Peter is saying. We all believed it until the Spirit did the exact same thing among the Gentiles. And now all of a sudden, there's a record scratch. Now all of a sudden, God can't give new hearts until Gentiles submit to laws that, by the way, didn't change us. That's Peter's argument. What's going on? The apostles fought against every attempt to smuggle works in as the basis for our acceptance before God. What is the basis of our acceptance before God? Here's a little sampling of the New Testament. For we conclude, Romans 3.28, that a person is justified or accepted by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the takeaway? From, and we could see a number of other ones just like this. What's the takeaway? It's this. We are declared righteous in God's sight by believing in Jesus not by our spiritual achievements. Now, let me stop just for a minute and try to apply this to our own time. Maybe you've never heard Christians say, you know, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. I imagine you probably haven't heard a Christian say that. But maybe you have heard Christians say, if you struggle with this or you struggle with that, you can't become a Christian. Or maybe you have heard Christians say, if you don't believe this particular theological perspective, if you aren't reformed in your theology or whatever it might be, I'm not sure you really are or can be a Christian. Christianity is still haunted by the ghosts of the circumcision party. If you have been sexually compromised, I'm not sure you can be saved. If you are sexually broken currently, I'm not sure you can be saved. If you have this cultural perspective that doesn't line up with sound theology, you can't become a Christian. So wait, a person has to be a Christian before they can become a Christian? 
Is that how this really shakes out, right? I'm not saying that Christian truth doesn't matter. I'm not saying Christian virtue is unimportant. The point is, as Christians, we have this 2,000-year-running nasty habit of barring the door to everyone except the people knocking on that door who eat, drink, dress, date, and vote like I do. And if they listen in on our own Acts 15 debates that are happening every day on Twitter or on social media, if they listen in on our Acts 15 debates, they might hear us saying, the Christian faith is amazing news for the morally qualified. There's only one problem with that. It's not a gospel. It empties the gospel of everything that makes it good news. Peter says, no, time out, verse 11. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. What's Peter saying? Law doesn't save, actually never did. Circumcision doesn't save. Jesus saves, and he saves us and them by grace. Full stop, he saves us and them by grace, or there is no saving to be experienced. And then James stands up. And he says this, follow along in verse 13, or it'll be on the screen. After they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's that's Peter's most Jewish name, Simon or Simeon. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. Now he's going to quote three different sections of Old Testament prophecy. Blend it all in one. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. That is James' mic drop moment. He's saying, you say you love the Old Testament? Let me, open with me. Open with me. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Turn with me to the book of Amos. Let me show you these things in the Old Testament. James's main point is this. As Gentiles come running to Christ, don't slow them down with Moses' checklist. And James is showing that ancient prophecy in the Old Testament tells us that the inclusion of the Gentiles is not an afterthought. It was the plan from the beginning. Go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Through Abraham's offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It was meant to go out to the Gentiles. And they were going to be included in one big new covenant family. Steeped in Old Testament prophecy, the Jews had longed for the vacant throne of David to be occupied by David's long-promised offspring, the Messiah. And in following this pattern of apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, James is saying, really, he's saying, he's pointing to that great moment when a king from David's line arrived on planet Earth, and that king from David's line suffered, died, rose again, was exalted and is now seated on David's forever throne. He's the son of David. David's son is on his throne. He's quoting this text. James is taking us there. 
I will restore David's dynasty so that, verse 17, so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. The implication is clear. The ingathering of the nations, including Gentiles, through the gospel is proof that Jesus is on David's throne. You ever been in a church where people look at other people who are in the room and after church they say to one another, so-and-so was at church this morning, what was she doing here? So-and-so was in church this morning, what was he doing here? It's as if sometimes we say the quiet parts out loud, right? Back to Peter in verse nine. He says, God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by circumcision? No, by faith. In other words, there's this exciting new concept on the ground, purification apart from ritual observance. And then Peter challenges the Pharisee party in verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? What's he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic Law. We, we've been walking, slogging our way through 1,500 years of history with the Old Testament law strapped to our necks. And how well have we been doing? It's been awful. That's Peter's point. Peter says, who are we kidding? Have you read the Old Testament law? 613 laws. How's that working in your life? That's what Peter's saying. He said, can I come to your house? What a haven of holiness it must be at your house. <laughs> Seriously, Peter is saying, why are we asking Gentiles to keep the law when we've had a 1,500 year head start and we still haven't figured out how to pull it off? The final nail in the coffin is there in verse 11. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Apparently, it takes some practice for it to sink in. <laughs> this is what it sounds like to defend grace to contend for the gospel of grace. The number of people saved because God was impressed with their spiritual performance sits solidly at zero. That stat's not changing anytime soon. Look, because grace comes first, you don't have to be a good Christian before God accepts you. Because grace comes first, you don't have to wash before he washes you. Because grace comes first, you don't need to demonstrate six months of freedom from a lifelong struggle before you can be baptized. You throw your life, including all your mess, into the arms of Jesus, the Savior and the Lord, and we will meet you at the waters. Pick a Sunday. And when you come up out of the waters, wait till you hear the church praise God and celebrate. Look, because baptism parties are way more awesome than circumcision parties. There's just no comparison between the two. <laughs> if you're here this morning, you've been confused about what grace means, if you've been confused about what Christianity believes, Christianity is this. Christianity is God in Christ and by his spirit doing what we could never do for ourselves. 
It's, it's not you picking yourself up by your own bootstraps straps, as if you could pick yourself up, as if you had bootstraps, as if you had boots. That is not a gospel. God is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Now we're talking good news. That's a gospel. Jesus comes, dies in our place, absorbs the penalty that was due to us. Modern hymn writer put it this way. When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet, the innocent is cursed, the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. We, we couldn't construct a theology that is a bigger wrecking ball to self-righteousness than the gospel defended in Acts chapter 15. If, so if you're not a Christian here this morning, why not today? Why not trust in Jesus, run to Jesus today? You might say, because I still have questions. Fun fact, a lot of us do. But I still struggle. Well, then you'll fit in perfectly. Look around. It's not about what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about our works. It's about Jesus' perfect work. It's not about your righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness credited to us when we believe. All, all we do, all we do is we extend the, the feeble hand of faith to receive the perfect provision of Christ and then everything is yours. Eternal life, full forgiveness, hope, it's all yours. That's what the Bible calls good news. Grace attacked, grace defended, and finally grace applied. Grace applied. So after James quotes three Old Testament prophets, and he says basically the full inclusion of the Gentiles, his argument is far from being a threat to the Hebrew scriptures, if we knew our Old Testament, we expected this. We anticipated this day would come. And, and then James says, let's not cause difficulty for Gentiles who are wanting to turn to God. But then he says in verse 20, but instead... We should write them to abstain, these are the Gentiles, we should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from blood. Now, this might look like we just snuck works right back into the back door. <laughs> right, we, we closed the front door, and then we opened a window in the back and said, okay, all right, but they actually do have to do this, 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 and this, right? It seems like that might be what's going on. Well, clearly the Gentiles in Antioch didn't take it that way because you hear, once the letter gets to them, you hear them rejoicing in verse 30. So what's going on? A couple possibilities and maybe a combination of both. Something like this. Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians, but neither can they remain pagan. In other words, all of the things that are in this fourfold list of exhortations have immediate associations with pagan worship in the first century. These are the things that were part and parcel of being a pagan in the first century. On the other hand, 
It might be a way of saying something that we find the apostles saying in several other places in the New Testament, namely this. Don't flaunt your gospel liberties at the expense of fellowship. Be willing to forego some of those liberties because you love your brothers. So here's a point for us to think about. In every generation, applying the gospel means we all have something to leave behind in order to fellowship at the foot of the cross. I'll say that again. In every generation, applying the gospel means we all have something to leave behind in order to fellowship together at the foot of the cross. When we contend for the gospel of grace, it affects the way we see God. God is kind. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Obedience flows from gratitude for grace experienced. So it changes our whole outlook. Our, our theology is affected and it affects the way we live our lives. But the gospel of grace doesn't just affect us in our vertical relationship with God, it affects us in our horizontal relationships with other brothers and sisters. It affects the way we relate to one another. Servanthood and unity and humility and every grace blossoms when the gospel is our greatest treasure. The greatest treasure that we have as the people of God is the grace of God. It's what makes Christian faith different than every other religion in the world. And that is why, friends, Acts 15 is a church fight worth having. We have to go on contending for the centrality of the good news of the gospel of the grace of God.